This morning we'll be looking at the last section of Ephesians 5 from verses 22 to 33. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use your word in our lives. That you would draw us ever closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would use it to correct our faults. To encourage us along the way. And to move us to praise the Lord our God. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen. Have you ever asked yourself, how do I witness for Jesus? What does that look like? And perhaps you have some trepidation when you think about this because you're not the sort of person that can memorize great amounts of scripture and repeat them. Or your personality is not such that you feel comfortable walking up to a complete stranger and asking them what they think of the Bible and could you tell them a bit about Jesus. Well, this morning and in the next few weeks, I have good news for you. The good news is is that Paul is going to begin describing for us ways in which we can declare the gospel to others Merely in the way we live and in the relationships that we have to others. 
For the next few weeks, we'll be looking a mini-series, as it were, within our series on Ephesians, of the theater of the gospel. Ways in which the Lord, in His, gra- in His grace, uses the very relationships we have and the ordinary things of our life to provide opportunities to show His gospel, His grace, and the work of Jesus. So this morning, as we're in the end of chapter 5, we'll be looking at marriage as one such theater of the gospel. How we can show forth the gospel of grace in marriage. And so this morning, I would like us to see three things about marriage. First, we see the duty of wives. Second, we see the duty of husbands. And then third we see the design of God in marriage. The duties of wives and husbands and the design of God in marriage. As we begin to think about marriage, we must come to grips with and understand that in our modern society, marriage is not what it is supposed to be. For most of our society, actually, marriage is an afterthought. It's something that people don't really think about. They don't think about or plan who or how or when they will get married. They put a lot more detail and effort into buying a car or a home than they do into selecting a spouse and into preparing for a family. As a matter of fact, in our society today, most of what we associate with a marriage goes on outside of marriage. Think of how common it is today for children to be born out of wedlock. Their parents are not married to each other. Think of how often men and women live together rather than getting married. Marriage is something that is seen as old-fashioned, as past its prime, as it were. And this shouldn't surprise us because marriage is also a place of conflict. Isn't it? Whenever we are close to another person, it provides an area of friction, an area of conflict. And so our dreams about marriage, that it would be all flowers and butterflies and gorgeousness, are met with the reality of problems in the home. And when marriages end, there is a brokenness that comes. A brokenness to relationships, a brokenness of heart, a brokenness with children. And we experience this all throughout our society. What Paul is telling us here is that Christian marriages should be different. Now, do not hear me saying that only Christians can get married. That's not the case. Uh, Marriage is a creation ordinance. It is for all people. But Christian marriages should be different than non-Christian marriages. And we see this in the context to the passage that we are studying this morning. Our passage this morning is a well-known passage. I venture to say that nearly every one of us has heard this passage read or preached on at a wedding. But we normally don't hear it in the context of what we looked at last week 
in verses 15 through 21. And we have to understand that the discussion of marriage comes in that context. It is a context in which we remember that Christians are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in verse 18. It is that Christians are to be a thankful people. He tells us this in verse 20. And that Christians are to live their lives putting others first. We see that in verse 21. So the entirety of the context of the discussion of marriage is that We are to remember that we are to be spiritual, filled with the Spirit. We are to be thankful for what the Lord has given to us, and we are to put others first. That is the groundwork, the bedrock, as it were, of marriage. So now Paul begins to describe what marriage is, and he begins with wives in verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This is where he begins. He begins with telling wives to submit. Now, this is a particular application of a general principle. And I know this from looking at the way Paul has written this. I know this from the missing word. You see, in verse 22, there is no verb. The verb submit is not in that verse. It's in verse 21. Verse 22 is verbless. Now that doesn't mean that Paul doesn't know what he's saying. He's not telling the wives to take any action. It's it's a common rhetorical device. And what he is doing is continuing his thought from verse 21 into verse 22. Now... This does not mean that wives don't really have to submit, that we can just excuse it as wives will submit the way anyone else will submit. No, this is a particular application of the Christian principle that we are to put others first. And in the context of a relationship of a marriage, that's what wives are called to do. To put others first. To put her husband first. Now, what does it mean to submit? It means, in general, to take a subordinate role in the marriage. It means trusting your husband. It means following your husband. Now, it is not a quid pro quo. It is not you give me and I'll give you. And I think... Paul wisely gives the direction to wives first. Because if he had told husbands to love first, I think many of us would be tempted to look at our husbands and say, well, I'll submit to you if you love me. That's not what Paul says. Paul says that wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, this does not imply inequality. It is not that wives are to submit because somehow they are lesser or they can't handle themselves or they need their husbands to let them make it through the day. You know this just from common experience, gentlemen. Have you ever tried to find something in your house? I've gotten to the point where I don't even try. I just ask my wife first because she knows where it is. I'd have difficulty feeding myself if it weren't for my wife. 
I'd have difficulty keeping track of myself if it weren't for my wife. It's not that our wives are not capable. There is nothing here about inability. There is nothing here about inequality. As a matter of fact, Paul says elsewhere in Galatians chapter 3 that in Christ there is no male and no female. Now, he doesn't mean there that we're all some kind of androgynous mess. What he means is, is that before the throne of grace, before the cross of Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, or old or young, or a Jew or Greek. In the most important way that we are human, the most significant way that we are people, that is how we relate to God, we are equals. But within the relationship of marriage, there is an order You see, this word here for to submit, it defines itself by order. You might think of it the way an army orders itself on the field of battle. If an army is to be successful, they don't just run around willy-nilly. No, they have to be in a certain structure, covering each other, helping each other, supporting each other, unified. That's what Paul tells us is necessary In a marriage. You see, men and women, I'm going to let you in on a secret here, are not identical. I know even the youngest among us know that there's a difference between brothers and sisters, right? And this is what Paul is getting at. That God has created men and women different, and he did this For a reason. You see, the great modern tragedy is that there is an attempt every single day to flatten out the distinction between the sexes. We don't have mothers and fathers, we have parents. We don't have he and she, we have z, or some such silly pronoun we make up. We don't have men and women, we have people. You see, there is an attempt everywhere around us to flatten out the distinction, to say that men and women are the same, because the world has this sinful notion that the only way we can be equal is to be the same. And God delights in difference. Just look at us. Some are tall, some are short. Some are big, some are small. We have different skin shades. We speak different languages. God is a God of diversity and difference. God delights in this difference, and so should we. We should not try to make everyone identical or exactly the same. Now, what does submitting not mean for the woman? Well, first of all, it is not to be overly generalized. Notice what Paul says. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, the word here for your own is a unique word in this context. It's not normally used as a pronoun, a personal pronoun. It means, it's an adjective that means particular, unique to you. We get our word idiosyncratic from it. You know, if someone has an idiosyncratic temperament, they're kind of off on their own by themselves. And that's what Paul is saying, that wives are to submit to their own husbands. They are to submit in the context of a relationship of love and respect. 
It's not that women are to submit to every man everywhere as if somehow they were inferior. No. All of this is in the context of this relationship. It's important because this speaks to the relationship, not the essence of who we are as men and women. Submission is also not slavish. Now, I do know that there are some, usually folks who do not read the Bible much, that like this, like this verse. If they had a life verse, it would be Ephesians 5.22. Because they think Ephesians 5.22 means, Honey, give me a Coke. Bring my slipper, baby. Come on. Submit. By the way, we'll buy the kind of car I want. And by the way, we'll live in the kind of house I want. Like it or lump it. Submit. But you see, that's not what Paul is saying here. You see, actually, when Paul is writing this to men and to women, it is like a bolt of lightning in darkness in the world. In the days in which Paul lived in Jewish society, in Greek society, and especially in Roman society, women were not even really considered people. They were like property. They could be done away with at a moment's notice. They were less valuable than even children after a fashion, because at least children could carry on your name. Now, we still see this darkness in parts of our world especially the Islamic world, but in other places. And you see, the truth of the scripture declares that women have value, that they are to be respected, that they are a part of the team of a marriage. And in that team of the marriage, they are to take a subordinate role. This is about order within the marriage. It's not about value. Now, it's also clear that it is not an uncritical submission. Some will again look at this text out of context and see in verse 24 that wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Honey, help me rob the bank. Submit to me. Baby, I want you to lie for me to my boss. That's not what Paul means. Because go back to verse 22. Submit to your own husbands how? As to the Lord. So husbands, you cannot ask your wives to sin in order to be submissive to you. That also means if you want your wives to support you and to be submissive to you, you need to be godly. Because you need to be following the Lord so that she can cheerfully and biblically submit as to the Lord. Now, here's another great surprise to the ladies here. This will not be easy. You see, it's not easy because the fall has distorted all our relationships. And it's not easy because of who we are as sinners. Now, I know some of you will want to talk to me afterwards and say, but pastor, do you know my husband? Really? Do you think I could submit to him? Do you know how selfish he is? And I can say, I don't know your husband as well as you do. But I'm absolutely certain he's selfish. So am I. And you know what? So are you. Sin makes you selfish. And that makes this even more difficult for wives to conduct themselves in this fashion 
in a marriage. And sin makes us doubt the wisdom of God, which is why the world comes to a text like this and says, it can't be true. It shouldn't be true. Because we know better. But the truth of God's word does not change based on geography or chronology. It is eternally God's word and true. And just as true as it was in Paul's day, it is true today. Now, this is not a cultural matter. This is not Paul just speaking into his day and time. People often try to do this with the Bible. When they want to escape the impact of the Word of God, they'll say something like, well, that would have been true in Paul's day, but certainly not in ours. That's a cultural thing. We've moved past it. But the reality is that Paul roots the command to submit in the creation ordinance. He talks about the husband being the head of the church, or excuse me, the head of his wife. In the same way that Jesus is the head of the church. It is rooted in the creation of Adam and Eve. Now, this does not give Eve less value because she is created second. You see, God created men and women so that they would complement each other, encourage one another. As a matter of fact, in the creation account, the only thing that God pronounces as not good is when man is alone without woman. Eve is the solution to the problem. That's a part of the creation ordinance. And being the head implies authority for the husband. He is the one who has authority. God has designed the family to be led by the husband. Now, once again, you have to understand that the world hates this, especially young people. You have probably grown up, and if you've gone to weddings, you have gone over and over again hearing wedding vows be edited. Because classically, wedding vows to the wife are to love honor, and obey. And we don't like that. So we get out our pencils and we scratch it out. As if somehow we could scratch out Ephesians 5.22. But you see, this is a part of the creation principle. But Paul even goes beyond this to describe the relationship in terms of redemption. He's already described Christ's headship over the church in Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. And that means that the church is joined to Jesus. That Jesus is the head of his body for the good of the body. And what Paul is saying is, is that this relationship between men and women, husbands and wives, goes even beyond creation. It goes to the story of redemption as well. And so if we think about the church, the church gives instructions for wives as to how they are to live out this command. You see, this is not a random relationship between husbands and wives. It has purpose. It has meaning. Just like the church is not thrown together at random. It's not a relationship where wives are to be taken advantage of by their husbands. It's a relationship of love, respect, and growth. Exactly like that of the church and Christ. You see, the church submits to Christ. 
And she does so voluntarily, freely, even joyfully. Because the church understands that submitting to Christ is in her best interest. It is for her blessing that Jesus is her head. This is a reminder to us that this command is not just how it is. But it is a command that God has given for good. The second thing that we want to look at is the duty of husbands. And Paul tells husbands to love their wives. Now, I think part of the reason we get so hung up on the command to submit is because we think submit is a horrible word, and we think love is a piece of cake. If we try to gauge in our modern sensibilities the difficulties of the two jobs, submitting and loving, we say, well, loving is obviously so much easier. Because our idea of modern love is to have warm emotions every once in a while. To maybe occasionally say a kind word. To get misty-eyed. But Paul tells us that to love is actually a great challenge. The husband's duty is a duty to love and Right away, our modern notions of love are thrown right out the window. Just like we were given direction for submission, Paul gives us direction for love. And he tells us that what that love looks like is as Christ loved the church. Now this tells us that love, by definition, is self-sacrifice. That love is putting another before myself. I can think of no better illustration for us to latch on to than the love that a mother has for a child. Think about how much a mother will sacrifice for her child. She gives up sleep. She gives up food. She gives up her time. A mother is even willing to give up her life for her child to protect them. You see, love is sacrificing for another. And if we think about this in terms of what Paul has said with Christ and the church, it makes perfect sense. What did Jesus do for himself? Everything that he did was a sacrifice for the church. All that he taught, all that he did... All that he suffered, it was all for the benefit of another, for the church of Jesus Christ. And so you see, this context of what it means to love is a challenge to husbands. Now think of it this way. How can I lord it over someone else that I value them so highly I would sacrifice myself for them? You see, if husbands are following God's command, then they cannot take advantage of wives. And wives will joyfully submit to husbands. This is two pieces that must come together. And we're given an explicit example of what this means in verse 25. 
Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. Jesus did not spare anything for his people. He laid down his life. That is the kind of love that husbands should have for their wives. It means you must sacrifice for the benefit of your wife. It means that the blessing of your wife must be more important than your own happiness. Now, it means you must die daily to self. Now, this brings us back to a principle that we've seen before, and that is that oftentimes we are tempted to think in terms of grand gestures. So we say to our wives, Honey, if we were ever in a dark alley, and it were misty raining, some criminal came up with a gun, I would stand in front of you and take a bullet for you. Now, that's a good sentiment, isn't it? but not exactly something that happens every week. And so I would encourage you, rather to be thinking about the one time in your life you might be called to take a bullet, that maybe instead you might want to help with the laundry. Or you might want to help clean up the kitchen. Or you might want to encourage your wife and give her an opportunity to rest. To put your own needs and desires behind hers. To love her sacrificially day by day, to die daily to self. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we don't want to die to self. We want our needs to be met first. We want to get our benefit first. We want our likes to be established. Paul tells us that if we are really to love, love as Christ loves, that we have to be other-centered. Now, there is a reason for this kind of love that Paul calls for. And it is actually rooted in the authority that husbands have. Remember, the husband is the head of the marriage. But you see, the authority is exercised for the benefit of the one in submission. This is what we mean by using the term servant leadership. This is Christ-like authority. You see, in the world... We exercise authority for our own benefit. We want to be in charge because we get the best stuff. We want to be in charge because we get to cut in line. We want to be in charge because we can tell other people what to do for us. But a biblical authority, Christ-like authority, is we get to be in charge to benefit others. This is, of course, how Jesus rules, isn't it? All that he does is for the benefit of his people. And this is how husbands are to live with their wives. They have real and biblical authority, but that authority is to be exercised not for themselves, but for the good of their wife. Husbands are given this authority to serve their wives' interest. And Paul gives us an example of this again. He talks about how Jesus sanctifies the church, that we are to love our wives, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You see, 
Husbands are given this authority for their wife's interest. And just as Jesus is making the church holy and perfect, and he is doing that on a daily basis, this means husbands are to have their wives' spiritual growth in mind in all that they do. An implicit part of this authority is providing support and resources and encouragement for the spiritual growth of your wife. You see, the husband's goal in marriage is not himself, but her. And our failure to see this is why we buck against submission. But the biblical norm here is for a marriage of support and respect and encouragement. You see, Jesus loves the church and he is going to present her as perfect. Jesus is not holding back the church by his authority. No, what Jesus is doing with his authority is he is making the church all that she is supposed to be. And this is what husbands should do. They should have as their main priority bringing about the full spiritual potential of their wives. This recognizes the value of the wife. Now, there is an important remind here, reminder that we must look at. Because you see, theology is important. And we should pay attention when Paul speaks in theological terms. But Paul also wants to make sure that we understand and do not miss what he is saying. That's why in this passage, three times in verse 25, in verse 28, and in verse 33, he tells husbands to love their wives. Do you find that interesting? He only has to tell the wives once. He tells the husbands three times. This also is extremely hard because this is a kind of love that is beyond the natural. It's what some have called a Calvary love. A love that goes beyond natural love. A love that is like Christ's love. And so Paul gives us a practical example of what this will look like in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. He tells husbands to love their wives as themselves. Now this can seem obvious to us. Nobody hates themselves. So we are to, just as we are to have our own best interest at heart, we are to have our wives' best interest at heart. It's also a reminder about the nature of marriage. That's why Paul will quote Genesis 2. That a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, there is a mystery here. You are together. So this is not a battle to see whether you can submit more than he can love, or you can love more than she can submit. This is a battle in which you are together against the forces of darkness, following the Lord Jesus Christ. You are one flesh. And so it's a call to men practically to be sensitive. Now, I know my own wants, my own desires, and my own needs. And so I must make the effort then 
to understand my wife's needs and desires and wants. We all want the best for ourselves. And so we are called to be kind to our wives because just as we want the best for ourselves, husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives. To lift them up. How does this happen then? All of this depends on communication. How can we know what our wives need spiritually unless we speak to them about it? How can we know that they know they are valued unless we speak to them about it? How can we know that they know they are loved unless we communicate with them. You see, communication is essential for a marriage, not because it's a magic formula, because it is the way in which husbands carry out their God-given Jesus duties. We must communicate. Thirdly and finally, we see, beyond the duties of the spouses, the design of God for marriage. You see, marriage is about much more than individual happiness. Marriage is, first and foremost, about the establishment of the family. God established marriage in the garden before the fall. Marriage is God's design for the world. The relationship between men and women is purposeful, and God has designed it. And this is why there is great horror and great harm in our recent attempts as a society to redefine marriage beyond that which God has given. You see, God has designed this relationship with a purpose. And the problems in marriage come not from God's command, but rather from sin. From our own inability and unwillingness to obey God. Marriage is also designed for the perpetuation of the family. Because there is a day in which the family must divide. Now it seems counterintuitive, but if you think about it, the basic relationship in the world is not natural. The basic relationship is not between a parent and a child. The fundamental relationship in the world is between a husband and a wife. That's why there comes a point in which the children leave the family and start their own family. The fundamental relationship of the world is a husband and a wife. That they might raise children and that those children might go and start another fundamental relationship. And then have their own children and so on and so on. Now, this relationship between the husband and the wife does not cancel out all other relationships. I'm not saying to you guys that you can't have buddies to watch the football game with. Or ladies that you can't go to lunch with your friends. But we view all of our other relationships through the prism of marriage. It is foundational. Secondly, God has designed marriage to be a mutual blessing. He designed it this way because we were not meant to be alone. He said this in the garden. Now, we have to pause here for a moment 
and realize that that does not mean that every person who is not married is broken. As a matter of fact, Paul says the exact opposite in 1 Corinthians 7. What he says is, there are some people that God has given a gift to, an ability to not be married and be content. So you see, it is not as if the only way you can be right is if you are married. It's not as if you can't follow the Lord unless you have a spouse or have help. But what it does say is that marriage is designed for the mutual help of men and women. This is why Paul reiterates this in verse 33. That each one of us is to love his wife as himself and to let the wife see that she respects her husband. The husband is to lead for the benefit of both of them. The wife is to respect and to submit to her husband. And in this there is a mutual benefit that is found. The third and final thing that we see about marriage is something that is true of marriage even apart from our own marriages. And that is that marriage is something so much more than a mutual help. It is a witness to the world. It is an opportunity that we are given to show the gospel to others. Because the marriage relationship parallels the relationship of Christ to the church. I dare say it is not going too far to say that God instituted marriage for the primary and express purpose of revealing in time an aspect of the eternal relationship between Christ and His church. It's not as if God was looking around saying, now, now what, can I, what can I use as an example here? How could people understand Jesus in the church? Let me think about this for a minute. Should I go with pet owners? No, no, no. Should I go with work? No, no. Marriage? No. God in His purpose and plan designed marriage to be so, to show forth the gospel of His grace. And think about how important this is. It's so important that the world does everything it can to avoid God's truth. The world does everything it can to avoid understanding the gospel. But the Lord has created an institution that is a picture of the gospel. It is a mystery, Paul says, but it is also profound. It goes beyond what it seems. And so in our marriages, we have a great opportunity. Now we could be selfish and think of ourselves. We could ignore God's command. Or we could choose to live to show others what redemptive love looks like. You see, marriages with self-sacrifice Respect and love speak volumes to others. The union of a husband and a wife is a picture of Christ and the church. And that is a message worth declaring each and every day of our lives. Even as God has commanded us to. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have taken something as simple, as ordinary, and everyday as marriage. That you have used it as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. Lord, we thank you that you are indeed so wise. And we ask that you would give us the grace that we need to live in accordance with your command, to love our wives, to submit to our husbands, to know that we are reflecting the glories of the gospel. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.